Welcome to Celebrate Poe, a deep dive into the life, times, and works of America's Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe. In his podcast, The Second Decade, historian Sean Munger quotes his fellow historian, Alan Taylor, the author of The Civil War of 1812, American Citizens, British Subjects, Irish Rebels, and Indian Allies, as saying that America and Britain were incompletely separated by the American Revolution. The War of 1812 completed that separation. Oh, excuse me, I feel some cold air. That must be Mr. Poe. Greetings, Mr. Bartlett. Hello, Mr. Poe. I must admit that I heard the last few sentences you uttered, and I agree that an excellent way of understanding the effects of an occasionally complicated war of 1812 is to remember the observation that the conflict completed the separation between America and Britain. Well, Mr. Poe, that pretty well covers it. I know that the American Revolution influenced you even uh, though you were not alive yet. The conflict meant that you could be born in a free country where almost anything was possible. And you would have physically been affected by the war between the states, such as the destruction of much of Richmond, except uh, that your earthly life ended more than 10 years before the war between the states began. Perhaps you would have fought on the Confederate side. Knowing what I know now, that would have been a, a difficult decision to make. Oh, I don't know, Mr. Poe. Uh, You were too much of a Southerner during your earthly life. This is becoming a a bit uncomfortable, Mr. Bartlett. Uh, Not to change the subject, but... uh, Why do people always say that when they want to change the subject? Mr. Bartley, I think it would be most appropriate for us to return to our subject, the War of 1812. Yes, and to remember the purpose of this podcast, to keep it more post-centric. Post-centric? I'm not even sure if that is a word. Well, it is now. What I mean is, I feel this podcast, while exploring areas that uh, might really surprise, and if we're doing well, entertain you, Celebrate Poe needs to be post-centric, centered around the life, times, works, and influences of Edgar Allan Poe. Now, getting back to the War of 1812, I think I'm going to weave the story of the War of 1812 against the background of the stories of two individuals, one strongly against the war and a man who is known as the writer of a song that was a result of the War of 1812. Uh, The British government was forcing American ships into their ports so they could tax all their goods, even if the American ships were not doing business with the British. Uh, The Americans were trading goods with the French, and Britain didn't like this at all. In addition to any economic sanctions, the United States understandably became furious at the British practice of impressment. Mr. Bartley, it might be advantageous for your narrative to explain what the term impressment means. Impressment means forcing men to serve a navy by force. In this case, forcing an American soldier to work without wages for the British Navy. Mr. Bartley, such a practice would seem to resemble slavery. Yes, Mr. Poe, impressment does have elements of forced work without pay, but slavery is a much deeper evil. 
Now, Britain also set various trade restrictions and gave some support to Native American peoples who opposed United States' expansion into their lands to the West. So many Americans reached the opinion that the United States should declare war on England. Mr. Bartley, were all Americans in agreement regarding this issue? Congressman John Randolph from Virginia told a group of congressmen who were eager to begin a war in his high-pitched voice, Gentlemen, you have made war. You have finished the ruin of our country. And before you conquer Canada, your idol, Napoleon, will cease to distract the world, and the capital will be in ruins. Mr. Bartley, those words definitely sound like the words of one of the Virginia Randolphs, one of the most influential families in Virginia, perhaps the most influential in the entire United States. Yes, and John Randolph from Roanoke was extremely firm in his belief that the war was needless and argued that the war would lead to high taxes and a larger national debt. Well, Mr. Poe, let's take a detour here and talk a little bit about John Randolph, since he's, he was such an interesting figure. Yes, Mr. Bartley. Uh, he was a direct descendant of William Randolph of Turkey Island, where I celebrated my first Christmas with the Allens. I will always have fond impressions of that occasion. Now, John Randolph was also born on Turkey Island and later moved to Roanoke, Virginia. From that point on, he preferred to be called John Randolph of Roanoke. It is believed that Mr. Randolph of Roanoke suffered from a condition that hindered his maturation, perhaps Kleinfelter syndrome. Mr. Bartley, would you explain what Kleinfelter's syndrome is? Certainly, Mr. Poe. Kleinfelter's syndrome results from an extra X chromosome in males. The primary features are small, poorly functioning testicles and infertility. Now, that would have been rough for an influential member of the Southern aristocracy. There were certain expectations placed on him, I would imagine. Intelligence is usually normal, but uh, the person might have weaker muscles, greater height, breast growth, and uh, less interest in sex. John Randolph of Roanoke never had a beard, and his famous orator's voice was high-pitched, some say womanly. Yes, he was rather well-known for, how should I say it, uh, the uh, deficiencies of his unusual appearance. In my story, The Facts of the Case of M. Valdemar, I wanted to communicate the idea of the unusual appearance of the main character's physique. So I wrote, his lower limbs much resembling those of John Randolph. Steve Vogel, a professor of biomechanics, describes Randolph this way. John Randolph's small head, raised shoulders, tiny waist, and long, thin legs gave him the look of a crane, an appearance all the more pronounced by his clothing, usually a swallowtail coat adorned with a white cravat in which he would bury his neck. Randolph was a bitter misanthrope, known in Congress as rude, merciless, and venomous. Mr. Poe, he does sound like uh, an interesting person, but not someone I would want to know. Mr. Bartley, knowing you, I had a feeling you might want me to talk about John Randolph. Would you like to hear me relate another story regarding his colorful character? Certainly. 
I encountered this story during a recent visitation to the local library. When I was in Richmond a few days since, said Mitch Richley Howard of Baltimore to a representative of the Washington Star at the New Willard, I made one of those bad breaks which proved so embarrassing. I was a guest of a member of the Crack Westmoreland Club, and after a slight repast, I was escorted through the building for the purpose of viewing the pictures, relics of the Civil War, etc., During the tour, uh, mentioned my attention was uh, particularly attracted to the portrait of what I took to be a, a very handsome brunette. I incidentally remarked to my host that the young lady was quite pretty, when, with a low chuckle, he replied, yes, quite pretty, but as a matter of fact, the picture represents John Randolph of Roanoke at 18. Now, let me explain how I was caught. The hair was parted in the middle and neatly combed back of the ears. The features were of a purely feminine mold, and the expression of the eyes and face was so shy and bashful that you will readily understand how I was deceived. One can hardly conceive, looking at the portrait of Randolph at the age represented, that he could ever have grown into the cynical and disagreeable creature he is reported to have been in his latter years. If he ever had love affairs which went wrong, I have never heard of them. As near as I can learn, he never had any real ardent affection for any woman except his mother, who it is said was beautiful, and of also it is said he closely resembled in beauty as a child. Later in the day, I paid a visit to Richmond's Hollywood Cemetery, a beautiful spot, and sought the grave of John Randolph. I found it on a gentle slope overlooking the James. It appears that some twenty years ago or more, the remains of Randolph were moved from the lonely spot in the forest at Roanoke to their present resting place by the state authorities. A marble slab now covers his last resting place, on which is the following inscription. Here lies John Randolph of Roanoke. The only other words on the slab are those giving the date of birth and death. The claim that Randolph of Roanoke never had any real ardent affection for any woman except his mother is not fully contradicted by Robert Meade's description of Randolph's engagement to Mary Walwood, who later married John Brothers, John's brother Edmund. John Randolph suddenly and inexplicably called off the engagement in 1799. Meade believes the engagement was broken off because of Randolph's physical impairment. It seems Randolph was not gay. He was more or less asexual due to his lack of physical development. A post-mortem examination of Randolph was conducted after his death, and it was recorded that the, quote, Scrotum was scarcely at all developed, unquote, with only a right testicle the size of a small bean. We might say that John Randolph of Roanoke was neither a heterosexual nor a homosexual, but falls somewhere else in the LGBT spectrum. Now, Mr. Bartley, I know that John Randolph of Roanoke was supposed to be a bitter and angry man, but part of me feels sorry for him. 
He was a distinguished and extremely intelligent member of a highly influential family who often seemed to reject, the man, not the family, he often seemed to reject everyone and everything, pushing people away before they became close enough to hurt him. Uh, akin to individuals today who automatically dismiss others as disagreeable before they are rejected as disagreeable themselves. Wow, Mr. Poe, I had no idea you could be so compassionate and understanding. I think we have, as you say, picked on poor John Randolph of Roanoke long enough. Yes, but I do think it's interesting that when Mr. Henry Clay became Speaker of the House in 1811, he forbade Mr. Randolph to bring his hunting dogs to the floor of the house, something Mr. Randolph had always done in the past. These were not small, quiet dogs, but large, stinking, sometimes howling hunting animals, and Mr. Randolph was accustomed to getting his way. Now, the two hatred the two men had for each other was quite intense. Uh, Mr. Randolph considered Mr. Clay corrupt. He famously called Clay a man of splendid abilities but utterly corrupt. Regarding Mr. Clay, he said, He shines and stinks like a rotten mackerel by moonlight. Mr. Bartley, if I relate a story about their duel, do you promise to move on to another subject? Sure. Go ahead, Mr. Poe. John Randolph especially disagreed politically with Henry Clay. He even called Mr. Clay one of the worst things that you could say about a person in the early 19th century. He called him a blackleg on the floor of the house. Mr. Poe, what is a blackleg? A blackleg is a cheater at cards. I cannot imagine being called anything worse. Then they agreed to meet in Virginia for a duel because Mr. Randolph claimed only the soil of Virginia was worthy of his blood. Now, that certainly sounds reasonable to me. Mr. Randolph confided to Senator Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri that he had no intention of hurting Mr. Clay, who was married and had a child. The duel took place on the 8th of April, 1826, a half mile north at Pemmet Run. So this occurred uh, a bit later than our narrative, but gives you a window into the character of John Randolph of Roanoke. Both shots missed their intended targets. Mr. Clay's second shot also missed, and Mr. Randolph raised his pistol and fired it in the air. The duel then ended, and the unheard adversaries met each other halfway and shook hands. This duel was proceeding almost comically. Mr. Randolph had accidentally fired his pistol before the duel began when he inadvertently touched the hair trigger. And although Randolph had expressed an intent not to fire at Mr. Clay, he was unnerved by the misfire and on the first round, uh, as I said, did fire at Mr. Clay. Uh, both gentlemen missed on the first round and proclaiming themselves unsatisfied went on with the second. On the second firing, Mr. Clay put a bullet through the skirt of Mr. Randolph's expensive coat, and Mr. Randolph made the grand gesture he had originally planned on, firing into the air and saying, I do not fire at you, Mr. Clay. 
When met halfway to shake hands, Mr. Randolph remarked, You do owe me a coat, Mr. Clay. Mr. Clay replied, I'm glad the debt is no greater. Now, conservative writer and historian Russell Kirk, in his book, John Randolph of Roanoke, A Study in American Politics, says that modern conservatives recognize John Randolph of Roanoke as a forebearer. After all, Mr. Randolph opened his public career in 1799 with a debate at Charlotte Courthouse against Patrick Henry in which he defended the position that the federal government had no right to impose laws on the state. It was Mr. Henry's last debate and Mr. Randolph's first. In any case, political opinion had reached a boiling point and America declared war on Britain. Britain had the most powerful navy in the world, while the United States Navy was much, much smaller in comparison. In 1814, the British invaded Washington, D.C. While it was the capital city of the country at the time, Washington, D.C. was considered just a muddy village on the Potomac. When Dolly Madison, and that's D-O-L-L-E-Y, Dolly Madison, wife of the president, realized that the British were coming, she became determined to leave nothing of value for the enemy. Among the treasures were a copy of the Declaration of Independence and boxes of presidential papers. She told her servants, if you can't save them, destroy them. She refused to leave without Gilbert Sullivan's portrait of George Washington. She had it pulled down taken out of its frame, had it rolled up like a scroll, and personally carried it out of the White House. Later she wrote, It is done, the precious portrait placed in the hands of two gentlemen of New York for safekeeping. And now, dear sister, I must leave this house, or the retreating army will make me a prisoner in it by filling up the road I directed to take. When I shall see, write you again, or where I shall be tomorrow, I cannot tell. Now, Gilbert Hunt also served in the War of 1812. And while we could not find in which battles he served, and I know Mr. Bartley and myself searched for the information, Mr. Hunt worked in the U.S. Army day and night during the War of 1812. He helped build, prepare, and mount cannons for his country's defense. Uh, By the way, you may remember Mr. Hunt from a previous episode in this podcast as the blacksmith who saved 12 ladies during the Richmond Theater Fire of 1811. After the destruction of Washington, it probably seemed the next logical step from the British point of view to attack the nearby city of Baltimore which at the time was the third largest city in the United States and a center of shipbuilding. Francis Scott Key, a highly successful and respected Baltimore lawyer, was on a British ship as one of the men negotiating the release of a prisoner held by the British. The British then forced them to stay on the ship because they were afraid their American men on board had somehow become familiar with British strength and their ship's position. I mean, this really amazed me. I mean, I grew up thinking, I don't know exactly what I thought, but I assumed that uh, Francis Scott Key was some guy who watched a battle from the shore and wrote the national anthem. I had no idea that he was basically held prisoner when he wrote it. 
that this was not just some idle patriotic statement, but this rather aristocratic lawyer had such a personal investment in what was going on and didn't know if he was going to live or die. It was dawn before Mr. Key could see an American flag waving in victory, and he wrote a poem about his experience called Defense of Fort McHenry, which later became the United States National Anthem. Possibly one of the oldest men to fight at Fort Henry was 71 years old, and none other than my grandfather, David Poe Sr. from Baltimore. Now, David Poe Sr. had served his country in the Revolutionary War as Assistant Deputy Quartermaster General of Baltimore. Amazingly, he served in both the Revolutionary War and War of 1812. And when General Lafayette came to the United States in 1824, General Lafayette came to Baltimore to visit my grandfather. But unfortunately, by then, my grandfather was no longer alive. Now, after two years of fighting, both countries decided to declare a peace treaty. To be honest, not a great deal was changed from the War of 1812. From what I understand, the issue of impressment was not really dealt with. But the war did give the United States a stronger sense of nationhood and allowed Canada to remain part of the British Empire. Mr. Bartley, I am exceedingly curious about Mr. Randolph and Mr. Key. As you know, they were quite different and ran in different political circles. It would be intriguing if they met. I can only imagine such a confrontation. Uh, Mr. Key was considered a very kind and giving individual, while Mr. Randolph was often of a, uh, how should we say, of a, uh, an arrogant and even bitter disposition with a tongue that could be both cruel and sharp. In one of the curiosities of history, Mr. Key and Mr. Randolph were actually close friends. When Mr. Randolph lost his seat after opposing the war, he left Washington in April of 1813 so quickly that he left behind books, letters, papers, also a gun flask and shot belt. In his rooming house, Mr. Randolph wrote Mr. Key and asked him to hold on to them. Mr. Key later wrote his friend in September to say, My dear sir, twas thinking of your gun a few days before I received your letter and determined to rub off some rust and try if I could kill Mrs. Key a bird or two. She has just given me another son and, of course, deserves this piece of courtesy. Uh, Mr. Poe, I could think of better gifts to your wife when she just had a child than a dead bird, but maybe that was considered useful back then. Mr. Bartley, I believe Mr. Key was referring to a turkey. Pardon me, Mr. Poe, that does make sense. Mr. Randolph of Roanoke made Mr. Key one of the executors of his will, which freed all of Mr. Randolph's 400 slaves. And Mr. Key fought to see that the will was honored and that the now freed slaves owned sufficient land to support themselves. Thank you, Mr. Poe. Farewell, Mr. Bartley. I must take my leave. There is so much I left out because there is so much about the War of 1812 to cover. If you're interested in learning more about getting a real survey of the War of 1812, 
I would highly suggest the podcast, The Second Decade, dealing with the second decade of the 19th century. Historian, author, and teacher Sean Munger, one of the coolest experts on history you will ever hear, has three excellent episodes on the War of 1812, episodes 15, 16, and 17. So look up The Second Decade for episodes 15, 16, and 17, The War of 1812, parts 1, 2, and 3, for almost three hours of uh, what uh, Sean describes as, quote, a trip into a relatively obscure part of American, British, and Native American and world history, an attempt to throw a rope around the War of 1812, unquote. Sources include the Civil War of 1812, American citizens, British subjects, Irish rebels, and Indian allies by Alan Taylor, John Randolph of Roanoke, A Study in American Politics by Russell Kirk, Fort McHenry, Home of the Brave by Norman G. Ruckert, Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography by author Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight R. Thomas and David K. Jackson, and Edgar Allan Poe, The Man by Mary E. Phillips. In conclusion, I think it is noteworthy that today, Monday, is winter solstice day in the Northern Hemisphere, the day when the earth tilts away from the sun the most and the shortest day of the year. This winter, perhaps more than usual, seems like a time of darkness and cold that we are unable to physically contact many of those around us. A common celebration from the past includes writing a list of the things you want to let go, sit in darkness for a few minutes while you think of the things on the list, and then burn the paper. A modern equivalent might be to make a list of things you want to let go on a word processor document, then closing the document without saving it. In either case, clearing negative thoughts from your mind and from your home. Then make a list of new things you want for the coming year, and this time, whether on paper or digitally, saving the list and taping it on a mirror, your refrigerator, or so on. And if this is not winter solstice, any day is a good time to make a list of the things you want to let go. Destroy that list and then make a list of your wants and needs for reflection. I believe that if we hold on, there is reason to celebrate a time of lighter days in the future, both figuratively and literally. The choice of a happier time is ours to make. Please remember to visit our website at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com for show notes as well as a transcript of this episode. And check out the cover art of a rather flattering painting of John Randolph of Roanoke. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe, and be sure to join this podcast for our next episode this Friday, December the 25th. Entitled Christmas with Edgar Allan Poe, this episode contains some surprising information on how we celebrated Christmas as a young nation.